Good to be with you this morning. Uh, we are going to finish up our series this morning. We're um, talking about our last theme, and the theme is hope. And so I might be the wrong person, though, to talk to you about hope because I am a Georgia football fan. And um, my heart is barred up and boarded up very tightly right now. And so I don't want to hear from anybody but Stetson Bennett had a great game and you dominated Michigan because I will see those, those hope, that hope on the horizon and I will be like Gandalf on the bridge saying, thou shall not pass. I will not allow hope for what's going to happen next Monday night. But let's look at God's word together and maybe we can find some real hope uh, in, the, in the passage this morning in Luke chapter 2. So we're looking at Luke chapter 2. Interesting enough, it's the eighth day is the scene eight, eight days after Jesus is born. Today is eight days after Christmas. And so here we are looking at this scene in the temple when Jesus comes for circumcision. It says, on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the, rise, the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and so does Georgia football. But not your word, O oh Lord, it stands forever. This is our great hope this morning. So let's listen to God's word. You know, this scene from the temple that we just read was actually painted by the artist Rembrandt on two different occasions. I didn't know about that until this week. I read an article on the uh, Rabbit Room website that said when he was 25 years old, Rembrandt painted a picture of Simeon in the temple. And so we have a picture of it on the screen, and you can't really see it that well, but what you see is that in the background is the temple, and many people have described the temple as being a fixture in this painting itself. It's so overwhelming and so glorious that the temple kind of takes on a life of its own. If you zoom in a little bit more closely, you can see that there's crisp brush strokes, that there's this ornate picture 
of Simeon holding Jesus. He's the central figure, and there's this illumination that's classic in sort of all of Rembrandt's work. This is an incredible painting. It's really amazing that this was one of his first. I mean, Rembrandt is really just showing off at this point in time. He, he is showing the world early in his career, I've got skills, and look at what I can do as he paints this scene that we just read. But the second painting that Rembrandt made of Simeon was 39 years later. It was the year of his death, and we have that one up on the screen as well. In fact, this was his last painting, and it was left unfinished as he neared the end of his life. And you can see how different this painting is. Gone are the crisp brushstrokes of a younger man. Gone is the temple. Gone are all the other characters in the story. It's just Simeon and Jesus. No distractions. No more showing off. It's almost as if Rembrandt in his old age realized what Simeon had realized, that at the end of my life, all I really need is Jesus. That's all we ever really need. But somehow this gifted painter had gotten to the end of his very long life, and he realized it wasn't just about him. Here's this old prophet Simeon, hands pressed together in prayer, holding the child, the baby looking back at him. At 63, Rembrandt is less concerned with impressing his audience. He seems to be saying, the lesson that I give you in the last year of my life is this, you really just need Jesus. You really just need Jesus. As I was looking at those paintings this week, I thought of that Fernando Ortega song, Give Me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all that the world wants. Give me Jesus. And so as we talk about the mission, if you want to think about how your life can be used to move, to move out in radical mission, how do you take your one life, your one and only life, and see his blessings flow out in the world around you? You only need one thing. You only need Jesus. It makes me think about Jesus when he sent his disciples out. They probably weren't even ready for this. But he said, what will you take with you? You'll take nothing. You'll go. Don't take a handbag. Don't take a purse. Don't take an extra pair of sandals. Don't take any food because I'm sending you. And when you go, you go in my name, and you go in my spirit, and I am with you, and you go in with my words. And so if you go with those things, you go with me. And if you go with me, you have everything that you need. All you need is Jesus. This is a lesson that is hard for us to hear. It's easy to understand, but I think it takes a lifetime to learn that all we really need to be satisfied and to move out into the world is Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, are you learning that lesson? Are you responding today to the hope of the gospel by letting it get into the longings and the desires of your heart and to be the light that exposes what's below the surface? Or is there resistance? And so I want to pray this morning as we dive in that God would use his word and his spirit to deepen, to deepen our longings for Jesus. That's what I want for my own heart and that I would be truly satisfied in him alone. So let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that you would be with your people through your word and through your spirit. And I pray that you would have our hearts. 
that our hearts would truly prepare room for you, as we sang about earlier. And we, we would know that the only way that can happen is you bring light to reveal darkness and to bring conflict into the sin that remains. So God, have our hearts. Help us to be honest this morning and speak to us through your gospel and through your word. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, so in the painting and in the passage, we're introduced to this character, Simeon. And the reality is uh, we, we don't really know that much about Simeon in Scripture. This is the only story throughout the Bible that we have of Simeon. We don't know anything about his parents. Their names aren't listed. Uh, he just sort of shows up. And we don't know if he's a temple priest or what. We don't know how old he is. We sort of infer that he's an older man. But really, what we're introduced to him with verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. That's it, just a man. Just a man with no background. It says he was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for something. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for consolation. Now, if you're waiting to be consoled, I want you to think about that. Logically, what does that mean? If you're waiting to be consoled, it means that your soul is agitated. It's not consoled. It's restless. It's in a place where you feel disturbed to some degree, and you can't shake it, this feeling of restlessness. And so here is Simeon. He's just a guy from Jerusalem. Might as well be a guy from Carrollton named Bill. That's how we, I don't know what just happened there, but we got the power back. That's good. But Simeon is just a guy. That's what I want you to see, and that we can relate to him because there are things in our lives that we're also waiting for. And then in 20, verses 27 and 28 says that the Spirit moved upon him to go into the temple, and when Mary and Joseph show up with Jesus, he asks to hold the child. And as he's staring at Jesus, something happens inside of him. Something changes, and he moves from this place of restlessness to a place of peace. And he begins to sing a song of praise, and in, in Latin, that song has been called the Nunc Dimittis. It's roughly translated, you may now dismiss your servant. That's from verse 29. You may dismiss your servant at peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. And so that phrase, nunc dimittis, has sort of come to describe what's happening in Simeon's heart. That there is this restlessness, that there is a longing, a soul desire that has been fulfilled. And when that happens for him, it takes heart it takes his heart to this place of glorious and glad surrender. He's saying, because of what I'm holding in my arms, this child, there is nothing left for me in this world. There is nothing left to gain, nothing left to lose, nothing left to prove. All I need is Jesus. I am totally emptied out and yet gloriously satisfied, totally full at the exact same time. And so the question this morning is, what are you waiting for? Are you willing to be that honest with your heart? You might be able to fill in the blank in this way and say, one way to answer that question is, if I just had this fill in the blank, then I would be happy. And we may not be willing to be that honest and truthful and succinct about it, but the truth is, invariably, inevitably, we are all pinning our hope to something. 
And whatever that something is, is the something that you are waiting for to bring consolation in your life, to ease the restlessness and the places where you feel disturbed. And this passage is telling us that unless we're honest about those longings and turn them to Jesus, we'll never be satisfied. As we dive in this morning, I want you to see what Simeon shows us about our deepest longings and our hope. We all need hope for the mission, and hope in the right thing can give you great power and great joy, even when circumstantially things are extremely difficult or hard. But hope in the wrong thing, even when circumstances are going great, will leave you agitated and restless. There is a difference between hoping in the real thing. And so there's three things I think Luke shows us that bring us real hope in the Christ child that Simeon is holding. And if we see Jesus through these lenses, I think it will strengthen our hope as well. So let's see what Simeon sees. The first thing he sees is the law of God kept and fulfilled perfectly. He sees that Jesus is a light that reveals and a sword that pierces. We'll do the first one and then we'll do the second two together. The first one, the law of God kept and fulfilled perfectly. Part of the consolation that Simeon was hoping for, we see in a promise of Isaiah in chapter 40. He says in verses 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. And what 1 Peter 1.19 tells us is that that cannot happen without a lamb, without a perfect lamb, without defect or blemish, meaning that what Simeon was holding in his arms was the long-awaited-for substitute, that he would complete the hard service for us, that he would be tempted just as we are in every way and yet keep the law of God perfectly without fail for us. And I want you to see how Luke emphasizes that throughout the passage. In verse 22, we start off, when the time of their purification came according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Verse 24, and in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord to offer a sacrifice. Verse 27, when the parents brought the child to do what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Verse 39, which we haven't read yet, but is the end of the passage, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. That's five times in 18 verses. So essentially every third or fourth verse, what do you have? Law, law, law. Law kept, law fulfilled. You know, I think one of the mistakes that we can make sometimes in our hearts, we talk about grace a lot in this church, is that what is the deal with the law? What's the big deal? I mean, it just seems so irrelevant to me now. It, it just seems like, aren't we getting away from grace? But I want you to know that this emphasis that Luke is giving us should make us stop and see the beauty and the nature of the law so that my hope can be rooted in what is true and substantial. I want to make sure that we don't think about God's laws as picky or useless or legalistic 
Because at the heart, God's laws are always meant to bring us closer to him. There was a guy at our old church in Dahlonega, and uh, he had some land kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Dahlonega's already in the middle of nowhere, but even more in the middle of nowhere, he had this piece of property, and he was burning some brush and some leaves, and he decided to use gasoline as an accelerant, which is a really bad idea. And as he poured gasoline on the fire, it exploded. And it shot up into his face. He covered his, his faith, face with his hands, but his clothes caught on fire. So he got on the ground. He started rolling around. There was nobody to help him. And eventually he was able to get a hold of an ambulance and get to the hospital. But he was, his whole upper body was completely scorched. He was in bad shape for a long time. Lots of skin grafts. Now, while he was in the hospital... The only way that people could get in there to see him, the only way that our pastors and his family could come to see him was if they followed a long list of rules and protocols and laws. Why? For his protection, because he was so prone to infection in the condition that he was. And so those laws did not keep people away from him, but they actually enabled closeness and intimacy with his family and friends together. That's God's law. It was given that we might be close to him and to know him. But here's the deal. Here's the problem. Sin is like a flash fire that has so seared our humanity that none of us can keep God's law. No one's been able to. And yet here comes Jesus. And what Luke wants to celebrate and to point to is that even what Mary and Joseph are up to eight days after the birth of Jesus, this is a righteousness that's being earned and perfected for you as the substitute. So that Romans 5.19 can be true, which says that through the obedience of one man, Jesus, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. It's through his keeping and fulfilling the law perfectly and crediting it to us that there can be real consolation and connection and closeness again. I want you to see that these laws aren't just arbitrary, that what he is doing is actually so consistent with the theme of who he is that they talk about the shedding of blood and death and deliverance. The first law is about circumcision. And so a sign was given to Abraham in Genesis 17 to to be put on every male child to signify that there could be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. A covenant sign to say that whatever fruitfulness that the descendants of Abraham produce, the cross must be in the middle of it to show that people can only have the hope of a new heart, a spiritually circumcised heart because of the shedding of blood of Jesus. And then the second law we see in the passage is Jesus being consecrated to the Lord. Why would they consecrate a child to the Lord? Well, part of what it was pointing to was the Exodus, where that first Passover meal, the children in Egypt were all faced with the judgment and wrath of God. Yet Israel's firstborn children were delivered. Why? Because they were Israeli? No, because a lamb had been killed and its blood hung over its doorframe. So they were passed over. And so not only do we see in these laws that there must be blood, but there must be death in order for there to be deliverance. And so I think that that's why Jesus, when he was old enough, said, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill them. 
Here's what, Jesus, here's what Luke is telling us. In this child, every single law, including the ones just eight days after his birth, were kept. And those laws were about shed blood and death and deliverance so that you can know how beautiful and important God's law is, but also so that you can know that you are rescued, not by keeping the law, but by his keeping it for you. And so that's the hope of Christmas. It asks this humbling, very unsentimental question. It says, are you willing to be exposed? Are you willing to admit something about yourself, to see yourself for what you are, so deeply burned by the fire of sin that unless someone else does something for me that I can't do for myself, I will continue to live life apart from God and to seek joy and happiness in worthless treasures in this world that cannot ultimately satisfy. Well, the other thing that we see in the passage is that Simeon points to Jesus as a light that reveals and a sword that pierces. Listen to verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation. And what does light do? Light shines in the darkness. It reveals things that are hidden. And notice what gets revealed and what happens as a result. We see it when Simeon blesses Mary and Joseph. In verse 34, it says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. What kind of blessing is that? That doesn't sound real good. I mean, imagine Andrew's up here baptizing babies and he pronounces this blessing on the parents. Mom, dad, here's the word of hope that I have for you. This child's gonna cause you some grief and some conflict and people are gonna hate him. Uh, wow, I thought blessings were supposed to be this pronouncement of something nice and happy. You know, biblically speaking, a blessing is more a pronouncement of something that is true. It's something that doesn't always feel good and nice to the recipient, and sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, but it's always edifying. It's always needed, it's always helpful, and it's never superficial. And so here's the Christmas blessing from Simeon, and it's utter, utterly unsentimental. It's saying that God in this child, Jesus, has come to pick a fight, to stir up to expose wickedness, to reveal sin, evil, and injustice so that one day there can be ultimate peace. Tim Keller says in his book, Hidden Christmas, that Jesus at Christmas does not come to bring sentimental cuteness, cuteness, but sovereign conflict. Sovereign conflict. Some people are arguing that Die Hard should be considered a Christmas movie. And so if you feel that way, I would like to... Um, I would like to negotiate for my own favorite Christmas movie. It's Braveheart. Has anybody thought of Braveheart as a Christmas movie? Well, I'll tell you why. Because in that movie, William Wallace, who is the Scottish hero, appears in the front of the battlefield before his comrades, before the battle at Stirling. They're facing the English. And when he shows up, they've been await waiting for him. They thought this brave warrior and soldier would rescue him, them 
but that the conflict, because he would be so strong and so great, would be minimal, and that they wouldn't have to actually fight. And yet what, what William Wallace says is, yes, I know, you could go home tonight and sleep in your beds and live, but you will not as long as there is a tyrannical imposter king who oppresses you ever have real peace without the sword. And then he starts to run out to the battlefield. And one of his buddies goes, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to pick a fight. And I love that scene because that's Christmas. That's Jesus coming at Christmas. Do you see it? I'm here to pick a fight. And yes, there will be ultimate peace. But that peace only comes as I bring conflict with the world and the, and the enemy and sin and darkness. What does it mean that Jesus is a light that reveals? Well, in John's gospel, we read that in him was life and that life was the light of men. Now, I want you to think about this. When we say that he was life, John means that he is the true life of God, that he is enjoying what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden before sin, a life of purity and wholeness and goodness without shame, absolute intimacy with God, full of integrity with God, ruling and reigning over his people. That is a life that we should all long for in this world. It's a life of ultimate peace. And yet because of sin and shame that characterizes my life, I hide from God. John 3 says that people love the darkness instead of the light. That because his light exposes people for who they are, it causes all sorts of conflict between people. I heard the story of, uh, this week of an all-white neighborhood. And there was one family in the neighborhood, a white family, that started to be kind and hospitable to the new and first African-American family ever in that subdivision. And when they did that, it made all the other white residents furious. What are you doing? This makes us feel guilty. We feel like we need to be doing what you're doing, and we don't want to. You see, light exposes people for what's really in their hearts. You think about being a, a college student or a student in high school, and somebody in your class gets a hold of the test, right, before you have to take it, and they start passing it around, and it comes to you, but you're a Christian, and you say, no, 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 I'm going to let it, I, I'm not going to use that. What did everybody else in your class think about you? What? What are you trying to say about us? Are you just a goody-goody? Just a holy roller? They feel, they feel interrogated. They feel opposition and pushback. And so I want you to see that when the light comes into the darkness, this is what happens in the world around us. But the number one place that we will experience resistance is from our own heart. Because a life of following Jesus is going to cut to the core areas where you run to for comfort. It's gonna cut into your deepest longings and loyalties. Simeon says to Mary this child, uh, says to Mary, this child will be like a sword that pierces you as well. And as his mother, 
She is going to experience firsthand the suffering, the persecution, the grief, ultimately Jesus dying for his people. But the most painful cut is the sword that pierces our longings and our loyalty for my own kingdom, for my own version of happiness. This is the crucified life. Christ in me, cutting away the imposter, removing the masks that I hide behind, cutting the cords that put me in bondage. Jesus says in Matthew 10, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. It's a sword that turns man against father, daughter against mother. There's always been a sword. You know, as soon as Adam and Eve experience the fall and begin hiding, they're booted out of the garden. And what happens? An angel begins guarding it with a flaming sword. That sword was to represent the judgment and wrath of God. It's a terrifying sword. And yet God does something with that sword. He pierces it into the side of Jesus on the cross. He takes the wrath. He takes the judgment. He turns it on himself in the person of Jesus so that we can come home to life itself. That's the conflict. That's the ultimate sword that brings peace because true peace comes when hope is connected to that which alone can satisfy. And the only loyalty, the only longing in my heart that can satisfy is God himself. Do you believe that? Is that really true for you? Where might the sword be piercing you this morning into your heart and your longings where you would be waiting for something other than him? And so as we begin a new year, I want to remind you of a really old truth. That the only way for your heart to be quiet and to be content, to be at rest, is to know Jesus. To be caught up in his story, his blessing and redemption. I want to tie this all up as we close this out. Our great hope for the mission is seen in the Christ who comes at Christmas to keep and fulfill the law perfectly for you perfectly kept. And when that happens, that should free you up to say, light, come into my heart. Expose what's really there. It's hard. I don't want to see it, but I'm willing to go there because I'm free now since you fulfilled the law. And when I accept it and do business with you, it might feel like a sword piercing my heart, cutting out the longings and desires for this world that can't satisfy. But on the other end of that sword is not death. It's peace. It's the peace of God bringing you back into a place where we look forward to a place of Jesus coming again, a renewed kingdom where we get to walk with him in the cool of the day, back in the garden, eating from the tree of life again, seeing him face to face. This is ultimate hope that that sword has pierced him. And so now, when we have that, we can move throughout the world with a humble confidence, knowing there's nothing left to lose. There's nothing left to gain, nothing left to prove. And when you live that way, you say, dismiss me in peace. Dismiss your servant, I'm here. I don't need anything. I wanna leave you with one last story. How many of you know this singer, 
or not this singer, this musician. Anybody know who that is? That's John Coltrane, okay? John Coltrane was one of the greatest saxophonists of the, of the 20th century in America, and he played incredible jazz music. In 1957, he was converted to Christ, and during that time, he wrote an album called Love Supreme. If you want to fall in love with your spouse again, go home tonight, get a glass of wine, and turn on a Love Supreme, and listen to John Coltrane kill the saxophone, and you will fall in love again. It's amazing. And then you can thank me later. During the year 1957, he wrote in the Leonard notes to that album, Love Supreme, Coltrane wrote, I experienced the spiritual awakening by the grace of God in the year 1957, which has led me to become a richer, fuller, more productive person. In that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked for the means and privilege of making others happy through my music. It wasn't about me anymore, and I feel that that has been granted to me through his grace. All praise to God. I love that. Here's one of the most gifted jazz players ever saying, it's not about me anymore. What, what I am doing is about what God is doing. And what God is doing through me is blessing other people. My story is not about me, it's about him. And at his last concert, he finished up the last song of the album, Love Supreme. He sat his saxophone down and the patrons up front heard him say, Nunc diminis. I can be dismissed in peace. I've spent a lifetime working, but I don't have to perform anymore. And when that spirit captures your heart as well, you'll be at rest. Where does that poise come from? It comes from a man like Simeon, just a guy from Jerusalem, who at his deepest core place was able to say, my eyes have seen your salvation. Let's pray together that our eyes would see it as well, even as we prepare for the table. Well, Father, thank you for your love for us in the person of Jesus. Thank you for doing everything that needed to be done so that the law could be fulfilled. Thank you for perfect obedience and a record of righteousness that would be offered freely to me. God, the hope of the gospel should free my heart, and yet I would confess there are still many days when I feel bound up, restless, agitated, trying to perform in this world, trying to be somebody for somebody else, to earn a name for myself rather than praising the name of Jesus, rather than simply being wrapped up in your glory, your story, and your goodness. God, I pray for, for my own heart and for the heart of your people here that we would come to a place of glad surrender, that as we surrender again to the goodness of Jesus, that though we may be totally empty, we would also experience the glorious the gloriousness of being filled with you and your spirit. So I pray that even now as we come to the table, you would make that real and deep and profound in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.